Folks, thanks so much for that, uh, for that special. It's just great to be here today with everyone. What a privilege and what a joy. You know, every Sunday morning we get together, we try to build relationships. I had a chance to meet a few people I've not met before yet this morning, and uh, that was exciting, and hopefully we'll uh, renew our love and friendship with one another here today as well on Sunday morning. And uh, speaking about getting comfortable here on that last song, uh, my guess is uh, through the course of this message, you may not get so comfortable and I, uh, I must say, I feel inadequate, you know, to share this topic because it's a real difficult topic to speak of because, frankly, um, I know people in hell, you know, and it's a real sombering thought. I think I have a certain mechanism that kicks in that kind of prevents me from really even giving too much thought to that uh, reality. But that is our subject today. Um, there's an expression in German, a state auf das Bibel. And I really love that in the German language. German is kind of robust and masculine. Ned, I'm not sure how you say that in French, but uh, it won't have the same effect at all, I don't think. But in German, it's, it's state of das Bibel. It means it stands on the Bible. And that's really what we've been doing here the last few weeks uh, here on the subject of heaven. As with all of our Sundays, we try to look at scripture and really base our convictions, our beliefs, the best we can on the scripture. Uh, does what we believe really stand on the scripture? And uh, in part of that series, and Rich is going to finish this series up next Sunday, but part of that series, uh, we thought we should address this subject, the alternative to heaven. We've taught that there is life after death, but is there also death after death? What does the Bible say about the alternative to heaven? And that's really what we want to take a look at uh, today. And so what do you say we pray? And uh, we'll just ask God to continue to lead and guide us here this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the day you've given us. Uh, the opportunity to be alive, the opportunity to worship you, uh, the opportunity to get to know people and uh, uh, that love you and people that are in quest, uh, perhaps somewhere on that journey of finding you today. Uh, we're just grateful we can be together in these moments. And we do ask that you uh, bless us as we take a look at what is a difficult subject for us to understand. Uh, we pray that our convictions and belief would stand upon the Bible and uh, truly guide us and lead us today as we take a look at this subject, uh, the alternative uh, to the, to the uh, topic that we've been discussing of heaven. Guide us, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. You know, when I think of, uh, of heaven, uh, my mind goes to the statue of the great thinker. Uh, how many of you ever heard of or watched the TV show Dobie Gillis when you were a kid? Okay, we've got one, two hands, three. Uh, that was one of those shows back in the early 60s, maybe, I don't know. Uh, but Dobie Gillis was kind of this college kid, and uh, oh, I don't know, he seemed like he tried to win the favor of every co-ed on campus and was always thwarted in his every effort. And he would stand out on campus in front of the statue of the great thinker, uh, which was on campus there, and kind of reflect on his failed efforts. Um, but anyway, that's kind of the long and short of that show. But I always associated the great thinker with Dobie Gillis, and then I associated it with academia. You know, all of your smart friends should be given a statue of 
is a great thanker for their library. Uh, I've never been given one, uh, I know that. But uh, it kind of represents uh, man's ability to think and reason and uh, the prowess of the human mind. That's how I viewed this statue, the great thinker. But in fact, there is a rest of the story to that story. Uh, the rest of the story is that this great thinker was uh, sculpted by a French sculptor named Rodin. He uncovered this statue in 1904 to kind of give you a sense of how long it's been with us here. And it's really part of a collection of statues. And Rodin decided to choose for this doorway the theme Gateway to Hell. And he borrowed from a writer of one of the greatest uh, literary works of all time, uh, Dante's uh, Divine Comedy, which was written in the 1300s. So about 600 years before the great thinker was sculpted, Dante had written what was the first self-help book in human history. He really wanted to help people understand the trilogy, the Inferno, Purgatory, and paradise, thinking it would help them live better lives. And so, again, Rodin went back, turned to Dante's writing, the first of the trilogy, Inferno, or Hell, and he looked at these nine levels or divisions of Hell that Dante wrote about. And so he decided that he would have one statue be Dante, and that's the great thinker. And then, of course, there's all the other little statues, which were various um, characters of, in the various levels of hell that Dante wrote about. And you see those people, those statues behind the great thinker, what we call the great thinker. And so I totally changed my view of the great thinker, though. The great thinker is Dante. And he's standing at the gates of his inferno contemplating the souls of the people at the different levels of the inferno, those nine levels. That's what the great thinker's thinking about. And indeed it is a sombering thought to think about. Uh, and I think that um, maybe it's a mechanism we have. Uh, you know, we kind of try to trivialize hell sometimes. We try not to think about it that much. Our culture's pretty good at it. Uh, here's a... Uh, a, a statement, though, by C.S. Lewis. There is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than the doctrine of hell, if it lay in my power. But it has the full support of Scripture, and especially of our Lord's own words. It has always been held by the Christian church, and it has the support of reason. C.S. Lewis, very respected for his uh, Christian faith as well as his ability to think things through. Another great Christian, John Stott, I'll just read you this statement that he wrote. In 2005, Time Magazine declared that John Stott, a pastor of the Church of England in Great Britain, John Stott was one of the 100 most influential men in the world, according to Time Magazine. I don't know if he's still alive or not. He would be in his 90s. He wrote this about hell. I want to repudiate with all the vehemence of which I am capable the glibness with which some speak about hell. It is a horrible sickness of mind or spirit. Instead, on the day of judgment, when some will be condemned, there is going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Should we not already begin to weep at the very prospect? I thank God for Jeremiah. Jeremiah, 
Yes, an Israelite patriot, though he was, he was charged with the heartbreaking mission of prophesying the destruction of his nation of Israel. He could not restrain his tears. Oh, that my head were a spring of water, my eyes a fountain of tears. I would weep day and night for the slain of my people. Jesus, Stott goes on to write, wept over the impenitent city of Jerusalem. He cried out, if you, even you, had only known on this day... What would bring you peace? Paul, again, another individual Stott references here, had the mind of Christ. He wrote of the great sorrow and unceasing anguish he felt in his heart for his own race, the Jewish race, the people of Israel. His heart's desire and prayer to God was for their salvation. He was willing, even like Moses before him, to be himself cursed and cut off from Christ if only thereby his people might be saved. He had the same deep feelings for the Gentiles also for three whole years in Ephesus as he reminded the church elders of that city, quote, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. And Stott concludes here, I long that we could in some small way stand in the tearful tradition of Jeremiah. The tearful tradition of Jesus and the tearful tradition of Paul. I want to see more tears among us. I think we need to repent of our nonchalance and hard-heartedness when it comes to the thoughts we have of hell. Again, very somber, sobering thoughts reflected by men known for their ability to reflect. C.S. Lewis, John Stott, and again, as we read the scripture, we're all reminded of the fact that hell, and, and simply put, it's bad, it's eternal, and it's real. Sometimes I think that's about it, the, the best way I can even grasp it myself. It's just so hard to, to understand in so many ways. But our culture trivializes it. Uh, I know that's true. Uh, here's a band, ACDC. Uh, again, uh, here's five young men. Uh, the one up front there, of course, he's trivializing hell, isn't he? He's got his horns on his head there. They were very famous for a song that they wrote. Anybody know the name of that one that I'm probably thinking of? Highway to Hell. You know, the lyrics are kind of along these lines. Mama, step aside. No sign's going to stop me. My friends are waiting for me there. You know, look out, world. I'm on my way. I'm on the highway to hell. And they were real unrepentant and boisterous about the, their claim of going to hell. Life's not been good to this band, though, I got to say. They're beginning to look a little bit like me. One foot in the grave and one foot on a banana peel. In fact, I think one of those guys slipped on his banana peel because we only have four now. And that guy up front still likes uh, to trivialize hell a little bit. He's got his uh, horns on still. Uh, but again, uh, we might like to trivialize hell. Uh, we see it in, uh, even as I am now. Here's a, a cartoon. Here's a guy from Led Zeppelin. Remember their song, Stairway to Heaven? Here's one of their band members uh, commenting to one of the ACDC band members who's facing the highway to hell. He says, whoa, dude, bummer. And maybe the ACDC guys did wish their hit song was Stairway to Heaven instead of uh, Highway to Hell. I don't know. But again, we tend to trivialize it. 
uh, it's almost uh, a mechanism, I suppose, to cope with what otherwise would be a very sombering reality for us. There's three concepts to hell, three fundamental views that people often hold about hell and what it's uh, really all about. The first one is that hell uh, is maybe an, a view, what you might call a universalistic view. There's the uh, nihilist view, and then there's the orthodox view. Those three basic views. The universalistic view is held by the Catholic Church, many others besides. Here's a, a quote from Second Vatican Council. Uh, having been brought up as a Catholic, I well remember the Second Vatican. It was when I was in high school. Before that, every Mass was in, uh, was in Latin. And I remember as a sophomore in high school thinking, boy, this is pretty neat. We can do Mass in English now. That was kind of cool. Or whatever language you were from. But Vatican II, there was a lot of changes, not just in what language the Mass was, uh, was given in, but also the view of, of life after death as reflected in dogmatic constitution on the church. I don't know if that's chapter 2 or book 2 or page 16 or chapter 16. Here's what it says. Those who, through no fault of their own, do not know the gospel of Christ or his church, but who nevertheless seek God with a sincere heart and moved by grace, try in their actions to do his will as they know it through the dictates of their conscience, those too may achieve eternal salvation. Nor shall divine providence deny the assistance necessary for salvation to those who, without any fault of theirs, have not yet arrived at an explicit knowledge of God and who, not without grace, strive to lead a good life. So according to the Vatican II position, um, it's really anyone who can go to heaven, anyone can avoid uh, hell, the alternative to heaven, if they lead a good life. If they strive to be sincere to the dictates of their own conscience, whether they're a Muslim or a Hindu or an atheist, it really doesn't matter. At least that's how I interpret this uh, uh, dictate here in the dogmatic constitution of the church from Vatican II. And of course, there are others that hold this position as well. Uh, You don't necessarily have to go through Jesus to be reconciled with God. Uh, And... uh, the other, the other view is the annihilist view, and actually John Stott holds this view, as does the Church of England that he's a part of. Uh, from their commission report in 1995, quote, hell is not eternal torment, hell is simply non-being. There comes a point uh, after your death here on earth for the unrighteous and the unwicked. They won't have heaven, according to the nihilists. Uh, they'll just be extinguished. They'll be annihilated. And they'll cease to exist for the rest of eternity. Some ways that's a preferable doctrine. I could almost wish I believed that. Uh, and as I said, great men like John Stott do. But I, I must say... Uh, I'm just not sure how they do other than they're trying to make it more palatable. Because hell is not a palatable doctrine, as C.S. Lewis mentioned. It's uh, an eternal place of suffering. According to the orthodox view found within Christianity for thousands of years. And so today, you know, we'll look at a few of the verses that relate. Some of the scriptural uh, descriptions of hell would include, from Luke 13, 28, a place of weeping. Uh, A place of wailing. It's a place of gnashing of teeth. 
uh, Luke 13, 28. It's a place of darkness, Matthew 8, 12. And of course, you'll note most of what we know about hell comes from men who were quoting Jesus. Uh, these are men like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John quoting in the Gospels things that Jesus was saying about hell. Uh, and that I do derive some solace knowing it's from Jesus himself that most of what we know about hell is derived. It's a bottomless pit as described in Revelation. It is forever as described in Revelation. It's a fire as described in Matthew chapter 5.22. Now some people say, Tim, how literal or how figurative do you take these descriptions? Well, I, I guess this is where I've morphed over the years, and you can decide where you morph, I guess. But it's hard for me to put fire and darkness together. So I, I tend to think of these as metaphorical descriptions of what heaven would be like. Ways of helping us understand just how bad it really is. And I think there are those who probably think, oh boy, I'm sure glad these are just metaphors. But you know what? I'm not so sure, but what the real thing is even worse than the metaphors. Uh, I'm just not so sure. But it does seem that Scripture has a desire for us to recognize how bad hell is. Doesn't that seem true to you? I, I can't, I believe that states off the Bible, you know, that the Bible wants us to know that hell is a, a very bad place. Other of Jesus' teachings, as we mentioned, Matthew 5, 22, uh, Jesus spoke about the danger of hellfire. In 529, he spoke about bodies being cast into hell. Some people don't like to think of God casting someone into hell. According to this verse, Matthew 529, God cast people into hell. Matthew 719, a tree cut down and thrown uh, was kind of likened to a soul that was, uh, would die without Christ. 812 again, that outer darkness. Who can destroy? Jesus is saying in Matthew 10, 28, don't fear people. And maybe that's a lifelong lesson of mine, I believe. But for all of us, if you fear God, it says that you can, if people, you can't fear God if you're fearing people. In Matthew 10, 28, Jesus said, I'll tell you who to fear. Fear him who can destroy your body. Yeah, the Roman guy, emperor can do that. But, but God can do not only that, he can also destroy your soul in hell as well. There's going to be a day of judgment, the Bible speaks of, and uh, when people's eternal fates will be sealed. Matthew 13, 42, hell is described, again, probably in a metaphorical way, but as a furnace of fire. We see in Matthew 25, 41, we learn that a little bit about hell, and that it was created for the devils, which would at one, were at one time angelic uh, entities in heaven with God, who rebelled against God, left heaven, and God prepared a place of darkness, this hell for them. Uh, but it's also a place that then is um, really just really a place without God, which fallen people will also be a part of. Here's a, a little uh, story. Some call it figurative, some call it literal. The story of Lazarus and the rich man. I'd like to read that story for us because it does uh, depict a certain sense of hell. And again, some will say it's figurative, some will say it's more literal. I tend to think of it as more literal, and I'll explain why shortly. Starting in verse 19, the rich man and Lazarus. There was a rich man, Jesus is teaching here. And Jesus is saying, 
There is a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day of his life. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's bosom or Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in hell where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus. Still wanting to order out Lazarus around. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. Abraham replied, son, and there is compassion here. Remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, they have Moses, they have the prophets, we also have the New Testament. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And you would think they would, wouldn't you? But Jesus says, if they do not listen to Moses or the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. And that's really a sombering thought that Jesus shared to his disciples to help them understand the nature of hell a little bit more. And you know, it's kind of interesting. There's a famous Jewish historical writer from the first century. He wrote a lot about Jesus' day. His name is Flavius Josephus. Flavius Josephus, who was not a Christian, he was a Jewish uh, historian. He actually wrote in his day what the uh, Pharisees of his day viewed, how they viewed what they believed about hell. And here's what he wrote. And you might recognize it because it's very similar to what we just read in, in, um, in Luke. Hades is a place where the souls of the righteous and the unrighteous are detained until the final judgment. In Hades, the souls of the righteous and, are, are, and unrighteous are separated by a chasm that cannot be crossed. The place where the righteous dwell is a place of comfort called the bosom of Abraham. Next to the unrighteous is a lake of fire that terrifies the unrighteous as they await the day of judgment when they will be cast into hell. Or cast into the lake of fire. The righteous and the unrighteous can see each other but cannot cross the chasm. Boy, just uh, right out of Luke, isn't it? Out of the story of Luke. That's what the Pharisees believed about hell in their day. And it's actually what Jesus was teaching to his disciples as well. The scripture does have a place called Sheol in the Old Testament. It means the place of the dead. It's what Lazarus was at in Sheol and what Flavius Josephus spoke of. A place where the righteous and the unrighteous appeared to be together but separated by this great chasm. Sometimes Sheol was used to to refer to, to the grave itself where a body would be placed into the Sheol, a place of the dead. But it also had this other spiritual meaning, a place where souls would 
be. Almost as though they were waiting for the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus into heaven, which Psalm 24 speaks of, where Jesus knocks on the door of heaven. For a man had to knock on those doors. And I'm going to tell you, when you read Psalm 24, heaven was surprised when a human being knocked on those doors, as Jesus did after he rose from the dead. And so we have then Jesus rising from the dead, and at that point, uh, he earned it, you would say, through his sacrifice on the cross. Uh, He was able then to allow those on the righteous side of Sheol to enter into heaven with him. And then the unrighteous part of Sheol continued on in the New Testament era, after Jesus' death, in a place we know as Hades. That's the Greek term. It's a temporary place also, kind of between death and ultimate resurrection, uh, where people who are unrighteous, their souls would be right now. If a righteous person dies today, we're told, and we'll look at this verse later, but their soul is present with the Lord. If an unrighteous person dies today, their soul is absent, is separate from the Lord in Hades. But the day will come when death will give up its souls. Living in disembodied state until then, one day will come when our souls and bodies will be reunited and be stand before the great white judgment throne of God, Revelation speaks of. And in that day, after the judgment, there will be those that will be with God forever and others where death, Hades, and the wicked will be thrown into this second death, Gehenna, which is the great lake of fire. Julie and I went to Jerusalem once, and we were in Gehenna. It's actually the name of a little valley, one of the three valleys. Jerusalem's surrounded by three valleys. And that's where this term even comes from. Uh, They used to even sacrifice their children in this valley. Even the Jews, at one point in their history, sacrificed children. It became a detestable place. And in Jesus' day, it was a place for garbage and trash and uh, the, the fire never, never died there, Gehenna. And that's why Jesus coined that term, uh, the lake of fire, Gehenna, or the second death. And that's where John Stott would say, and Annihilus would say, the second death is uh, where you cease existing. You're annihilated in the second death. Uh, but the Bible seems to suggest uh, that your life continues on even in that lake of fire. And so those are some just maybe brief overview Here are some of the few verses. I'd just like to share four of them with you from Revelation 20, 13 to 14. And the sea, that speak of hell. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And the death and hell were delivered up. And the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Daniel, there's not a lot of verses in the Old Testament. But there are a few. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting, uh, was it corruption? (laughs) I advanced the slide too soon. Uh, John 3.16, for God so loved the world, loved this verse, that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. For those who don't believe in him, uh, they would not have eternal life, according to that verse. And this verse in Second Thessalonians, Paul writing here to those in Thessalonica, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled, and to us as well. 
This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who believe. Those are very powerful verses that speak of hell. And we really have to ask ourselves, you know, what can we walk away with today? You know, what is the importance or the reason for studying or learning more about the concept of hell? Well, first of all, we do it because it's in the Bible. Uh, Jesus taught on it, and we want to understand and embrace all of Jesus' teachings and the best we can, even this very difficult one. But I think there's really some real positives that we can walk away with. And I'm certainly spinning positive here, I know. But there are some positives in our discussion of hell. First of all, it helps us understand better a true perspective of God and his character. It helps us understand better a true perspective of ourselves. It helps us really, it speaks to the need we have and others have, people have for salvation. And then it deepens our heart of compassion for the lost. Those are four things that our study of health can help us with. Regarding the true view of God, let's look at that one first. You know, it's really amazing when you think of God, one thing that comes to my mind is how powerful he is. And yet, we really only scratch the surface, understanding God's power. Uh, We really don't sink our teeth into an understanding of, of God's power. But as we learn to understand how powerful he is, you know, it helps us, at least it helps me, recognize why there might be a hell given who God is and hell is everything that God isn't but in terms of power think of it like this try to uh, you know it's just an amazing thing to think about it but just try to imagine God creating things by just speaking them into existence to me that's just an amazing thing in a few words God said let there be light And all of a sudden, the light obeyed him, and there it was. The light obeyed God's instant command. God said, let's raise those mountains up. And the mountains obeyed him. And God said, let's bring those valleys down. And the valleys obeyed him. And God said, let there be oceans. And the oceans obeyed him. And God said, let that ocean stop right there. And that ocean obeyed him. And God said, let's have that sun be right where it's at. And the sun obeyed him. And God said, let there be stars in the firmament. And the stars, for as far as we know, were positioned in obedience to his verbal command. That's how powerful God is. Geese fly in a V formation. Saw some the other day. They obey that internal clock that God has imprinted within them. As do all the other animals and creatures of this earth. They obey how God has designed them to be. And then God says to human beings, follow me. And we say, no. That is such a stark contrast, isn't it? That's how powerful God is, though. That is how powerful this great God is. And truly, being apart from something so great... You know, hell begins to take shape. I begin to understand how it could exist as it is 
when it's separated from this great and powerful God who loves us. He's powerful. We just need to try to understand that to the best we can. God asks us to come to him. And humans say no to him. And God will say, you know, I've got a purpose for you. I've created you. I have even designed the good works that you're to walk in today and tomorrow. According to Ephesians chapter 2. And people will say no to God, but will say yes to so many other things. Everything and everyone and anything and anyone will say yes to. You know, I, I derive my identity. I'm the best looking guy in the class. Or I'm the most athletic guy in, in the class. Or I'm the smartest gal in the class. That's who I am. And it's almost like our identity is found somewhere other than in the God who created us. We're quick to say no to God and being the individuals he wants us to be. You know, it's interesting, beckoning back to to Lazarus, the rich man didn't even have a name. Lazarus did. The rich man, he lost who he was. He lost his identity. Lazarus maintained his identity because he found it in Christ, in faith. One man put it this way. Hell is a freely chosen identity based on something else besides God. And that identity going on forever. It's like God has, there's two kinds of people. Those that say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. I'd like to read this other quote. And I, I bear with me on all this reading today, but it's C.S. Lewis He says this, Christianity asserts that we are going to go on forever and that must either be true or false. Now there are a good many things which I would not bother about if I were only going to live 80 years or so, but which I had better bother about if I'm going to live forever. Perhaps my bad temper or perhaps my jealousy are getting worse so gradually that the increase in my lifetime will not be very noticeable, but given millions of years, it might be very noticeable. In fact, if Christianity is true, hell is the precisely correct technical term for it. Hell begins maybe with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others. But you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and may even want to stop it. There there may come a day which you can no longer do so. Um, There will be no... um, then there will be no you left to criticize or even to enjoy the mood, but only the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. Kind of an interesting concept that he spoke of there with hell. And God is also a God of love. And this is another one of his great qualities where we want to have a true perspective of. And, um, you know, this is kind of a, Uh, Kind of an amazing thought to me, but when you think about this, did you know that in the first century, a lot of the Christians would be uh, taken captive by Nero, and they were covered with tar, and uh, they were impaled on a stick, and they would be lit on fire, and they would provide the light for Nero's parties. Can you imagine that? But we have record of these Christians going to their death singing, rejoicing. You know, excited that they can suffer for Christ. Well, if a Christian could do that facing a horrible death, why couldn't Jesus? Why was Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane sweating drops of blood? 
Why was Jesus hanging on that cross, crying out, My God, my God, why is thou forsaken me? There was no apparent joy or rejoicing or singing on Jesus' part. And you know, I think it's because Jesus' torment was far greater. It was infinitely greater because not only was he enduring a physical torment and torture, Jesus himself was carrying those sins of the world. He was bearing all the sins of the world. You know, some will say, look, why does there have to be a hell? What do you want? What do you, what, you ask that person, well, what do you want? Do you, do you want God to wipe out your sins and give you a fresh start? He's done that through what Jesus did on the cross. Do you want to uh, just have everybody be forgiven? Many don't even want it or ask for it or see a need for it. You might say, well, just leave them alone. Well, that's what God does do for those who choose to reject him. But Jesus' love is so great that Jesus himself bore our hell upon that cross. And it is an amazing thing as we begin to see the true love of God through the study of hell as well. We see what Jesus sacrificed for us more clearly. And there's also his holiness, uh, which is interesting as well. You know, when you think of God's holiness, uh, I think of Peter when, uh, when Jesus had him throw the net on one side of the boat. He caught all these fish and uh, he'd been fishing all night, didn't catch anything. And Jesus came up to Peter on the shoreline and Peter fell at Jesus' knees, it says, and said, my God, my God, you know, please, you know, just, you know, leave me. I'm a sinful man. And as we begin to see the holiness of God, you know what? Hell begins to make more sense. We just can't even tap the surface of how holy God is. You know, uh, if I were to create a DVD, I wish I could do that. I, I really wish I could make a movies. That's neat. That uh, different people that do that. But imagine this. If I pick someone and uh, Rob Nielsen over there, since he trivialized hell earlier in his announcements, I'm going to pick on Rob. Uh, let's just say that I, I could take Rob and, uh, you know, capture every bad thought Rob has ever had and all his bad deeds that he's ever done and all of his bad words that he ever said and put it in a neat little, you know, DVD. Uh, background music that works. I mean, I think, I think this place would be packed out tonight, Rob, uh, to, to watch that DVD. But I'm also guessing Rob won't be here. Uh, to watch that DVD. Rob would be too embarrassed. And I know because I'd be too embarrassed. And but Rob would be too embarrassed even though all the rest of us, our DVDs would be just as bad. He'd be that embarrassed coming in here with all of us wicked folks who've done the same things. He'd be too embarrassed. Now imagine you standing before God. That's how holy God is. You know, we don't even want to stand before our friends with that kind of information. But you're going to stand before God with that kind of information one day. And as we begin to think about this holiness, the power, the love of God, I'm just beginning to scratch the surface. We'll spend eternity and even then not understand these things about God's character. But little by little, it kind of maybe begins to help me understand how maybe there is a a rationale then I could see why there might be a hell. You know, there's so much more we can say, and we're running low on time, but um, 
Let's move on. It also gives us a true view of ourself, of course. Romans 3.23 teaches us about God. Uh, for all have sinned, we are sinners and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, let me just jump forward on a couple more of these slides. Here's a woman with leprosy, which Isaiah 64.6 speaks of. This woman, he says, we all have become like filthy rags. Even our righteous deeds are like these leprous rags. Uh, it's, um, it's sobering. In Genesis 6-5, and I would like to just maybe read that one verse for us. In Genesis 6-5, it says this. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. And he destroyed man with the flood. And do you think that we're any better after the flood than we were before? I don't think so. I think we're just as evil and as wicked after the flood. The flood judged mankind, but it did not change us. We are just as wicked today as we are then. Our nature is bent for evil. I know because my granddaughter spent the weekend with me this weekend. No, I'm joking. <laughs> I'm joking. Yeah, some people say, man, if only kids could rule the world. Oh my gosh, can you imagine a bunch of selfish kids doing that? But anyway, folks, look, it's, um, I'm running out of time, and I, I kind of needed to have a better sense of this. But, but it does um, help us understand just how sinful we are. And again, when I understand how sinful I am, hell begins to make more sense. Um, it teaches us our need for salvation. For all have sinned. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness was. I just read that. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And for by grace you've been saved through faith in Christ. And that not of yourselves is the gift of God. Not of works. So that no one can boast. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God. We are confident, yes, well, pleased rather, to be absent from the body so that we may be present with the Lord. Thanks to what Jesus did on that cross for us, we can avoid the alternative to heaven. And we can instead have heaven itself. Love demands that you seek God quickly. You know, it's not wise, you know, to put a decision off to accept Christ. And it's uh, really, I think, the subject of hell is meant to sober us to our need for Christ. I can remember the gentleman that shared Christ with me. I was a freshman in college, went over to his room one night, and he said, Tim, you know, if you die tonight, you're going to hell. And man, I got mad at him. I, I didn't even ever want to see him again. But I was also scared pitiful. And I remember going home that night, looking both ways, crossing every street, because I didn't want to get killed. <laughs> And you know, Romans 3.23, where it says, uh, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Um, you know, sometimes I think of that in a euphemistic way. And I think, oh yeah, nobody's perfect, right? All sin, every, yeah. You know what? That verse should really make us very afraid. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I've sinned. You, hey, you should be very afraid of falling short of this great God's glory. Very afraid. And so, God, though, Again, though the wages of sin is death, he sent his son that through him we might, indeed, we might have life. I was going to show you a video. I can't. Lost time. Um, got out of control here on time today. But, um, you know, it was a story of this tribe in New Guinea that got saved. The whole tribe. 300. All at once. They spent two hours jumping up and down. And then they spent the next two hours weeping. Weeping over the prospect of all their 
relatives that came before them dying and not having the gospel message. Because this also teaches us, the subject of hell teaches us uh, to have a heart of compassion. You know, I'd like to just close on a song for you. And uh, then I think Rich is going to come up and wrap things up. Uh, It's just entitled, Come to Jesus. Uh, If you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, this is the day to do it. You really aren't assured that you'll have another day uh, to live your life. And uh, the consequences are too grave. And so again, um, I'll just turn this over uh, to the sound folks. Uh, Let's close in a word of prayer and then we'll have the song play. And when the song's concluded, I think Chris will come up. Lord, thank you for this time together today. And Father, we just, um, in fear and trembling, present truths from Scripture about this uh, concept of hell. We don't understand it, but believe it's real, believe it's bad, believe it's eternal, and believe that Jesus... Uh, Jesus is the answer, and through Christ, we have salvation, and we're so grateful that Jesus is our God. He is our representative who come to this earth to die on the cross for us. He is the propitiation for our sins. Lord, we're so grateful to Jesus for that. Uh, The gospel really is the first thing we learn, and it's the thing we'll probably spend eternity learning all the more. And I just pray, God, that today, if there's any here who've not accepted Jesus, uh, that they would in these moments ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.